0: And I tell people, you know, the ladies, when they say, well, you know, in 1918, 10% of the pastors were women. I said, that's absolutely true. But in 1918, we had no churches. Everybody had to start a church if they wanted to pastor. We weren't a denomination then. We were a movement.
1: Yeah. We had
0: a message of holiness, and we wanted everyone to hear it. And everyone, man or woman, went out and started a church.
1: need to tell better stories, instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and and really flood the airwaves with something different? Hey, welcome back to the podcast. And in this episode, I interview Dr. Ron Blake, who is the superintendent uh, in Indianapolis for the Church of the Nazarene. And we have a good time reminiscing in this episode. We talk a lot about church planting, um, leading churches, um, setting goals, and, you know, how to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in a crazy, crazy season like this. So enjoy the episode, and I hope you listen all the way to the end. Hey!
0: Joanne Joanne. How are you?
1: Good. How was your vacation in Florida?
0: You know it was lovely. We've been yeah. back a week and one of my pastors was elected district superintendent in northeastern Indiana on Friday. I, so
1: I saw that.
0: We've had a lot of excitement and it's all good. Tim's a great guy. Yeah and I think know, I met
1: him. Didn't we do the CPE training yes, there? And
0: You know he's uh, if you've ever gone to any of the Bow High, Corey Jones kinds of things. He's oh, yeah. He's good friends with all of those folks, and he mm-hmm. has probably well, not probably, absolutely the most multicultural church I have. Third to maybe forty percent are of various ethnic groups. That's so he's done a he's done a good job. He's a good man. Uh, being a district superintendent is like when you become a parent. No <laughs> one can exactly prepare you for it. <laughs> what they say, or becoming a pastor. You can go to church yeah. all your life and see it, but you don't have no idea. You've heard my speech before on that. So
1: yeah, thinking
0: about district superintendents, you know, I've been on advisory boards and worked at headquarters and been around district superintendents for years. Um, but again, you don't really have any idea what anyone does until you do what they do. So, yeah. But, but he has the temperament. He's a much kinder, more devoted Christian probably than I am. He probably won't <laughs> snap heads <laughs> off like I do. <laughs> I'm trying to get, Joanne, before I die and go to heaven, I'm trying to become more kind. As a matter of fact, that's one of my goals every day I say it. Today I want to, and I have three words that I say, and the first one is I want to be kind. But you would know, Joanne, that sometimes when you're leader, you may think you're being kind, but nobody else, fe- it doesn't feel like kindness when you have to say, thus saith the lord or walk ye therein or stop yeah so anyway i'm going to try to be more kind in my old age
1: all right well i'm i'm going to work on your laughter you
0: don't think that's a goal (laughs) i'm going to be able to achieve
1: (laughs) Uh, i think i think you do well i think you do well i i'm working on that too and also well a couple other things too
0: (laughs) Well, I I would have to say, you know, I've been on pastoral ministry for nine years and you can fill in and be an interim and pulpit supply. That's about like everything else I've just discovered. At least in my lifetime, I I can't imagine a more challenging time to be a pastor. And unfortunately, we're not even close to being through the challenge. They're going to just be continual challenging times, regardless of politics, viruses, there'll be other things as well.
1: So, Yeah. I just got back from that prayer retreat. So part of mine was realizing that this is at least another nine months.
0: So our DS meeting in September has been canceled. And then your DS told me on Friday night, you know, there's even talk that our February meeting may not happen, which I'm not complaining about all of that. What I'm saying, even for you, how do you plan? I mean, that's six months from now. So how do you plan for life six months from now? I mean, I, go, I guess we can't ever plan for life six months from now. <laughs> but it used to be you could at least come up with a plan. I'd, it's almost laughable not to come up with a plan.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, Someone was asking me, are, are we going to do, you know, two or three of our fall events? And I said, uh, probably not.
0: So <laughs> I, I'm not sure that some habits aren't forming, Joanne. Oh, that yeah. that we have church for, for the rest of our lives. And I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to define the reality of it. Maybe, maybe I'm all wet. You're, you're on the ground. <laughs> you guys should be telling me what I should say to people.
1: Well, we we launched our dinner church last month, so right now we're only doing it once a month, and that's because of you know the restrictions. You have it we'll in the home the, or at the church? Um, we're having it on at the church, but on the front lawn. So we'll do that until we can't do that anymore which you know with michigan that could be, uh, be a couple of weeks from now <laughs> we can, yeah we could have snow in september but we we're, we're trying to get at least in august september and maybe in an october one if weather cooperates because we know that then we'll have to shut back down really our goal is to just make as many connections with people as we can and then be able to relaunch in the spring hopefully oh, So that's,
0: that's, that's exciting uh, I appreciate the fact, Joanne. You're doing something. We can't just sit here and say, "Oh, we can't do anything." Right. We, because we're in the church, have a tendency to think how all of this has affected the church. Right. It's really affected every strata of society. Oh yeah. I mean, and I mean, I, you know that until you get out and see it, because I've, uh, you know, we all are living a little closer to home. I have a board review tonight, so. We're kinda of getting back into it and two pastors have been voted in the last two weeks. So but you know, it's different from church to church.
1: Yeah, we're supposed to celebrate ten years. So well,
0: that's hard to believe.
1: I know. Elected happen. nine
0: years ago this month.
1: Yeah, that's right, because it was almost exactly a year after we launched. You got elected and I got my last check.
0: All to save time?
1: Yeah. You know, with them sponsoring us. You got after your last Sunday is when I got my last check.
0: Really? In September, I guess, huh? Right. Well, I hope the help you got that year helped you a little bit.
1: It did. We got into a building that we ended up buying, so.
0: And everything with that has gone okay? I mean, I'm sure there have been ups and downs.
1: Yeah, there's been ups and downs. We had a couple of years with our boiler, you know. But, I mean, that's the location. You can't beat this location. And that's really what's helped us these last few years is those relationships we built. built. Otherwise, we would have never been able to launch this dinner church.
0: Well, you've done a great job. I'm very proud of you. You are a great pastor, Training as a board member interviewing me. (laughs) Uh, How many years ago (laughs) would that have been? A
1: Uh, lot. Oh, uh, my word.
0: 2003. So 17 years ago.
1: Oh, my word. That's a long time. Tell me about it.
0: You got to be on my side. You know, getting older, Joanne, let me give you an uh, a very uh, inart, unartful definition of getting older. It's like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. <laughs> it's rolling, girl. You wouldn't know that a, young, a young woman like you, but I know. It.
1: Yeah, that interview, and then the next week, I got my district license. Right. Right after the interview, so
0: you had to get off the board remember
1: i know i was going to just get off the board anyway and carl f is like you stay on the board till you get your license
0: that was probably good advice
1: since we're since we're going back in time tell us about your first church the first church you ever oh, pastored
0: flower bluff now and it's not spilled flour like you pick a flower it's flour like you bake a loaf of bread flower right. bluff there was a group of people that had been a part of first church and They wanted to go out there and start a church and it had fits and starts. And there was an old building. It was right outside the Naval Air Station, across the, almost to the John F. Kennedy Causeway, it goes across the Padre Island. It had been a bar. So in the back of this room, and it was this beautiful, I wish if I'd had sense, I'd have taken it out of there. A stainless steel bar, like an L, like, in a Western where people would be standing (laughs) around the bar drinking. It was gorgeous. And then the the people in the church took the dance floor and the bandstand and really transformed it into an attractive looking church. We had a little group handful. I think I started there when I started, there was 13 people. And by the time we left, we were well over 100, but you couldn't put many more than that. And in those days, I never heard of multiple services. You just packed them in one time and said, okay, Jesus, let them go somewhere else, I guess. But <laughs> we were across the street from three bars that had mud wrestling. Headquarters for the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang was two doors down. <laughs> I didn't know any of this till I got there. And we started a food pantry in there, and when uh, this was way back when Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, he and Casper Weinberger, who was the Secretary of Defense, was during a recession there in the early 1980s, opened up uh, military installation housing that was unused and, get, and allowed a local uh, groups to use it for housing, people who've lost their houses. And I was a part of a ministerial association in Corpus Christi. And one day just sitting there, they talked about it and they voted in, we're going to do that. And then they said, we need somebody to direct it. I mean, I I am 24, 25 years old. Before I knew it, I had been nominated. Nobody knew my name. I'd been nominated and seconded and voted in to direct it. I don't even know who I am. Well, you know, then you think, well, why in the world would they pick me? I'm just freshly minted from a seminary. And then you kind of think, well, they must see some real leadership potential in me or something. But the fact was, I lived less than a mile from the Naval Air Station. So if a couple of drunks got in a fight and stabbed each other. I could get there and clean the mess up before the before media got there to cover it. So that was a, an interesting experience. But that's the kinds of folks we had. We had we saw miracles there of a guy named Joe who had had. Ruin veins in his arm for straight lining heroin. Right. And I was so dumb and green. I just believed God could do anything. I didn't, had no idea what I was doing. People started coming, getting saved. Joe met me one day and said he had to, he'd gotten beaten up by some of his former people because he was no longer dealing drugs. Oh, it was, it was unbelievable. We, we had an outlaw gang member come over and tell me because this person who had been this guy's contact to selling drugs had threatened to kill me in the church for getting this guy out of the drug business. And so one day I'm out getting the mail and here comes this motorcycle. right straight through me. And I thought, this is it. I came to Corpus Christi. I'm 25 and I'm going to have a short minister. I'm going to be killed right here on this street. And he said, you all have helped my sister. And I just want you to know, he called the name of the guy who had threatened to kill me he's not he's not going to touch you so i think i probably in 1984 the, or 1982 the only nazarene pastor that had an outlaw motorcycle gang for bodyguard so that <laughs> but we saw people saved miraculously um, it it reminded me of kind of an old line nazarene church like what my great grandparents would have come into because people who get saved out of that they they go just as hardcore for Jesus as they did for sin, and they would shout and jump up and down and testify and run the aisles and because they knew they had been redeemed for something. I go to most churches. I think well, people here must not have ever been saved for much. It doesn't look like it did too much for them. So anyway, <laughs> that's another story for another. But that was my first church. Then I went to, you know, we took an old bus there in Corpus. A guy who now lives in San Antonio. He was sort of the mechanic of it. I didn't, so I'm sure he didn't. We didn't have CDL licenses. A church in San Antonio had given us the bus. So let me tell you something. If a church is done with a bus, it's beyond used up. And we had to roll the windows down because the fumes were coming up into the bus. So we could have all been killed. We went through apartment complexes. Now you have to understand in 1982, I had never heard of a fajita nor had anybody else in the Midwest. That was all new stuff. Well, we began eating, and these Hispanic families would give us their children. They didn't know who we were or where we were. Could you imagine today? We would have that bus with kids almost hanging out. We could have asphyxiated all of them. I'm I'm really giving confession, but we built the church that way. But then I learned an important lesson. I went to, to restart the second church in Northern Indiana in a small town. What worked... In the Bowery, in Corpus Christi is not going to work in Indiana in a small town. And I, I warn pastors today, do not fall in love with your methods. Right. They are work If they're working today in this place at that time, rejoice, but be flexible. If I had gotten that old bus that I had in Corpus and drove through Syracuse, Indiana, I'd have been arrested. They thought you sure, that I was up to no good. That's what I learned in that second church is you have to pray and find what's gonna work in this community. You can't just right. say, well, this is my tool and I'm gonna use it the rest of my life. You have to trust the Lord. That was a long answer, I'm sorry. I'm a preacher and I talk too much.
1: It's okay. So then you went, you were at a lot of different places. Yes. And then you went to clergy services, right?
0: It was in those days. It's now, if it still exists, it's called clergy development, yes. It was called clergy services in my day.
1: And then how, how long were you there?
0: was there uh, three years. And
1: that you, was my only
0: staff position ever in my entire life. I've been the lead pastor or district superintendent ever since.
1: You never, you never had a staff position? You were always a lead pastor? Oh, no. I didn't I, realize that.
0: I probably temperamentally am not cut out for a staff person. I say to my wife every once in a while, when in you know, five to eight years, whenever it is we retire, I say to her, "Well, I might go on staff somewhere." And she says, "I'd think about that again." For you. I think I could, but I never was. I I never was a youth pastor. Yeah. Not like you wonderful people that were great staff people. I wanted to be lead pastor.
1: Uh see, now I was going to say, "Yeah, I'm probably not the temperament for a staff person either." <laughs> well, I'm not going, I did not say that. <laughs> You're oh, well. a staff
0: member. You 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 were very organized and that's probably one of your the uh, you, you really had everything running well. But you changed your positions a lot, didn't I? Didn't I give you other assignments along the way? I mean it seemed like it changed at times.
1: A little bit. I mean that was primarily outreach and evangelism and changed a little bit, but
0: Well, I think toward the latter part of it, you really kind of moved into more of a I mean, yes, outreach was always what you were doing, but I think I kind of considered you more just a, uh, a, not just a, an associate pastor as well.
1: Yeah. Well, once we started the martial arts ministry, that's, you know, that's when I realized, I started realizing, yeah, you know, I'm pretty much have a church right here,
0: but why don't I just
1: do it? So why don't I just start one myself? Yeah.
0: Well, I try to encourage everybody to start a church. We, we, we do not have present enough churches that everybody who's going through our colleges and our district training and Bible college and seminary, that there's going to be a place for them.
1: Right. And
0: I think some people have fallen in love with the idea of a building and a pulpit and a board. And I, I tell people, I know they think I'm kidding them, but I'm actually believe I'm speaking the candid truth. The kinds of places I can appoint someone you'd be better off start something in your living room. Yeah. There, there's such history and entrenchment. And one thing I think COVID is doing from us, it's it's reorienting us to the fact that even in my mind, whenever I hear church, probably the first thing that pops into my mind is a building. But the church isn't a building for centuries. The church operated without buildings. Fine. I, I'm trying to say to them, you have a call, your call wasn't to a building, it was to the Lord, and he will place you right where you need to be, but, you know, because I started churches uh, back when that wasn't in vogue, a lot of it was nobody wanted me to come and pastor their church, I guess, so you had to, you had to get out there and do it, but I, I wish we could change that, that I'm through schooling, I'm ordained, now give me a building and some people, because I'm getting to feel that people think I'm their employment agency or their HR director. And we're called to reach the world. And that means one block at a time.
1: Yeah. I'm
0: really going all across the field here, Joanne.
1: (laughs) You have to be willing to take some initiative. I'm not
0: trying to mix it, but the pastor, to be a pastor at any, at any level, at any place, regardless of boards and district superintendents and your spouse, if you're if you're not a self-starter, you can hide under the radar for a long time. Yeah. And if you don't feel a strong sense of the call and enough initiative to get out of bed and do something, it you're gonna, you're eventually, it's going to run its course. I'd say plan a church. You you're a perfect example of that.
1: Yep. You said plan a church. I said okay.
0: <laughs> Joanne, I need to make sure I I pass this if you. Uh, this speech on to some others, because I've told others, and they've not been as receptive as you are were. You know, especially I tell the women, plan a church, and they think it's because I can't get them placed. Now, that may be part of the truth, but I was a man. I had been raised in the church. I had two degrees from Nazarene institutions. Let me tell you what was offered to me. One place in Illinois, the little church had all gone to the big church across the river. The DS called me and said, there are no people, no money, and an empty building. God bless you. And that's with a Master of Divinity degree from Nazarene Seminary. The other place, I will not tell the state because somebody will track the story down. There had been a woman pastor who, in a town of about 800 people, ran off with the secretary, Now, this is before I even knew there were such things as this. So you just imagine, Joanne, in 1981, the story I told you in a Midwestern state in a small town. There were maybe five people. So do any of those sound better to you than starting a church, an empty building, or following this other mess? I think, no thanks, I'll go make my own mess. Starting a church is not any harder than what I just tried to describe to you. I mean, start going to a place where there used to be people in empty building. What is that but a church plant? Right. I think people think I'm giving them the crumbs. I learned the greatest lessons in life as a church planner, The greatest lessons in oh, yeah. ministry.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So there I am. But not a whole lot are listening to me, Joanne.
1: I tell every, every woman that comes and wants me to mentor them, I say, plant a church.
0: As you know, my great grandmother, her two her two sisters, and their husbands, were converted in a tent meeting in Paulding, Ohio, around 1918 at the Nazarene Church. The Nazarene evangelists became the pastors. They were husband-wife ordained. And my great grandmother's sister said, "We have a I have a sister who's a widow, and has two small children, and they don't go to church." And so she asked Sister Rich if she would go and call on her. Well, now this is in 1918, before women had the right to vote in the United States. And here was an ordained elder that could hold communion, marry people, do anything in the church. So she knocks on my great-grandmother's door, and they were not church people. Well, she'd never seen a preacher, let alone a woman preacher. And she said, "I'll, I'll never go to that kind of a church. And that night, she says, the Lord woke her up and told her to get up and get her children ready and uh, go to church. And she's one of those few people who I've ever heard testify that the first time they heard a gospel message, they got up, went forward, and got saved. And then the riches moved to Huntington, Indiana thereafter, and were there 30 years, and I would follow them. I would follow them 50 years ago. And I tell people, oh. you know, the ladies, when they say, well, you know, in 1918, 10% of the pastors were women. I said, that's absolutely true. But in 1918, we had no churches. Everybody had to start a church if they wanted to pastor. We weren't a denomination then. We were a movement.
1: Yeah. We had a
0: message of holiness, and we wanted everyone to hear it. And everyone, man or woman, went out and started a church. If you remember, Joanne, I think at one time during the latter part of my ministry at Detroit, half the staff were female. Yeah. And I say to people, the people who have the greatest power to impact the church right now in regard to women in ministry are pastors of good-sized churches. Because you could pretty much get your board to agree to put on staff whoever you want. And so... If you remember, you women preached, you prayed, you led the communion services. i never from the pulpit, I don't think, at least I tried not to. I ever called you Joanne. I called you Pastor Joanne. Because if you begin to make that normative in our churches, it it seeps into the culture. Unfortunately, in this position, it takes the votes of other people to make things happen. It's not so much in the local church, and that will help change the culture. I hope that doesn't sound like I've given up on it. I take a woman's name to every church I go to because I feel like that's who we are and we have to do that. But I can take the name. It doesn't mean that I can make that happen. Right. I'm really across the field here, am I not?
1: (laughs) It's okay. It's all good stuff.
0: But I I grow weary of, of hearing people criticize district superintendents when I see pastors of large churches who have no female staff members. Right. And they can easily put many women on staff. Right. Well, I'm really sounding like a wild, wild person today. I'm usually nicer than <laughs> I can see why I have to work on being. <laughs>
1: All right. So, how about uh, leadership leadership tips for pastors leading staff?
0: Oh, and this is, this is a terrible <laughs> one for her to ask me because I have a feeling a couple of good stories are going to be ruined by an eyewitness. <laughs>
1: what?
0: One thing that happened to me is I was at Indianapolis West Side where we had a large staff, and then was put in that position in, at the Global Ministry Center. And I remember coming back to Indianapolis a year later for some sort of a conference or something, and I happened to come by uh, the West Side Church. And so I just stopped in, and the secretary said that the new pastor is holding a staff meeting. I went and knocked on the door, he opened the door and greeted me. And I saw, and he had kept the entire, I think pretty much the entire staff I had there. And I saw them and I said, Pastor, may I speak to your staff for one minute? He said, well, she stayed stay for the rest of the day. And I said, no. I walked in and I said, I got down on my knee and I said, I apologize for all that I did to you. I had no (laughs) idea how tough it was to be a staff person until I took this position now, where you have to leave a room where you can make your case, but when you leave the room, you, you have to act as if you are the one who thought this up. You have to be, um, be supported. That is a leadership principle. When you can no longer support the leader at whatever organization you're in, that means it's, God is telling you it's time to do something else. And so I had only seen it as a senior pastor it looks, it's another one of those cases of, Joanne, of something looks different. So looking back on it, I realized that the places where I had some sense of of, uh, success, things went well. Uh, Oftentimes, it was because of the staff who actually got in the trenches and did the work. At Westside, as well as at Detroit First, there were people like yourself, John. you would be one of these, that when we dream up something, somebody had to go and put flesh and bones on it. And, and that were people like you. And I would say to pastors, leading staff, probably need to step back and take a flyover and realize you're a lot better because of these people. Hopefully you don't. The worst thing most pastors do is to try to hire people that look and act and talk and do just like they do. And you need people that are different. You, you were great because, you know, I, I still chuckle when I think of when I made all the staff visit people after church and you would go <laughs> home and lay, lay down till the evening service. <laughs> and so, but because of your personality and your giftedness from the Lord, you were the, exactly the kind of person that someone like me needed. The other thing I would say uh, to pastors is you still have to be truthful with the staff. If there are things that need to be corrected, we can't just smile and go on. We have to have those. Uh, you know, I'm a great believer in the eat the frog theory. Um, right. If you don't eat a frog, go ahead and eat it. It doesn't look really any prettier the longer you look at it. And if there's something <laughs> that you need to say, you just need to say it. Now, Joanne, did I ever do that?
1: Oh, it- yeah, <laughs> sorry I said I told I told Linda I said I think uh Dr. Blake just wrote it on his calendar like every six weeks call Joanne in his office <laughs>
0: <laughs> Joanne it wasn't that bad was it <laughs>
1: that's all right I it served me well it, it prepared me to do what I'm doing now so
0: I think there is a camaraderie that is necessary. It's wonderful. It's great to do ministry collegially, but as iron sharpens iron, one of the reasons we're all together is to make each other better. Right. And, and not just to coddle and and uh, carry on. But, uh, you know, I think, other than the ones I fired, I think I had good relationships today still with the people <laughs> who are who are on staff. Uh, I communicate with Eric down in Florida periodically and uh, stay in touch. And so I had great staff in, in lots of places who I'm very proud of. And I don't take much credit, but I try to take a little credit. And then I have said to lead pastors on my own district when they're fussing at their own staff, I ask them this question, who chose them? It's sort of like marriage counseling when, when people would uh, come and uh, say, it's all his fault. It's all her fault. And I'd say, well, in America, we don't have arranged marriages. So you have to take 20% of the, of the uh, blame for picking them. So nothing is ever, I hear this when when pastors say, you know, staff and well, the problem is never with one group of people, whether it's, but keep the lines of communication open. I hope I did that here. I'm saying again, all these stories are going to be verified by an eyewitness. <laughs> I hope that you felt like you could come and talk.
1: Yeah, I did. It was good. Those six years definitely prepared me for what I'm doing now. I, I would. I don't think I would have, well, I'm a different pastor because of that, a better pastor because of that.
0: I am probably a better district superintendent because of uh, the place where I was because there were wonderful <laughs> leadership lessons learned there.
1: Oh yeah, well I remember when you got elected, and people, people said, moaning and groaning about you leaving, and I, you were born to be a district superintendent. So well,
0: when some little grandma down in southern Indiana starts puffing up and going to tell me what hog ate the cabbage, I think, ma'am, you don't know where I've been. You wouldn't even <laughs> made a girl scout troublemaker where I came from. I've seen fear, and you're not it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah but you know there here's the funny thing there were hard places in that place but now with a time of reflection it is my favorite place that I ever pastored i think because it stretches you and you grow and i think when you go through some tough things as we did as a congregation i just think there's a you grow together and right I know that people laugh when I tell them that was my favorite place, but it really, and I'm probably to this day, though I don't see them often, I'm as close to the people in that church as anywhere I want. So sometimes great things are birthed out of adversity.
1: Yeah, I found, you know, it made you, it made you think of other possibilities. Like you had to just be more strategic in doing stuff God was calling you to do. And I think I would have quit I would have quit the church plant thing long ago if I didn't have that experience.
0: I absolutely agree with what you're you're saying is that there was a, an element there that you were always kept a little off balance. There are times at certain congregations that you can just pretty much predict. If I say, this is what I want to do. We've prayed about it. We plan whether they want to or not, they'll go along with it. Well, at that place, that was not the case. <laughs> And what I learned was to hone, hone the plan, look at the plan, sort of like a diamond, look at it from all angles, right. look for the holes, look for what the questions might be. And I have to tell you, I believe that has served me well these last nine years in this position, that you can't just accept something, look at it from two or three different angles.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. more than one, one way to skin a cat.
0: Oh and how.
1: <laughs> 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 All right. Well, we've been talking about your well, Linda and I have been talking about your Blake So uh, <laughs>
0: well, the DSs were talking about them and I don't even know what they are. They just are a part of who I am, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, what's your what's your Blakeism on being on time?
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am in the process of writing a book about the leadership lessons I learned from my little four foot 11 godly Nazarene grandma. And I learned that one from her. And and I say it here often as well, early is on time, on time is late, and late is unacceptable. And Joanne will know, Pastor Joanne will know this. I left a staff member who wasn't on time when we were leaving to go to Flint for a Christmas banquet. Is that not true?
1: (laughs) That is very true
0: the funniest thing i don't even know that linda bynum knows that i know this but evidently the person i left who is a friend of mine was shocked when he got there and we were gone and linda bynum said well i can't believe you're shocked i've known ever since i've been at the church early is on time on time is late. late is unacceptable so linda was a quick learner
1: yeah she says Someone asked her, well, how did you know that? She goes, well, Duane gave me a heads up when she was leaving.
0: <laughs> and I try on the district, it doesn't always happen, but when we were doing Zoom meetings or wherever else, I try to start on time. To not start on time and to show up when you feel like it, to me, is the height of disrespect. Plus, my grandmother, I mean, it was just the way we operated. All right. If you didn't see us 20 or 30 minutes before the thing started, you can be guaranteed we weren't coming <laughs> <laughs> that was running weight <laughs> but what, what that tells me is that the impressionableness of children Yeah. because here I am and I still try to live by that well I'm glad to know I've provided people with lots of good laughs over here I don't know I
1: was always there early
0: Joanne that is why you've had such a successful life <laughs> you, you <laughs> early discover what's expected and do it right
1: yeah,
0: see? Being early or being on time or being late is a habit. Yeah. And if you've ever noticed when you're pastoring, back in the old days when we sat on the platform and you could see people coming in, Oh right. people came in the same door at five after or ten after the service started, week in and week out. They were not late. That's the time they planned on arriving. I'm sorry, I'm beating that dead horse. Remember when the horse is dead, (laughs) dismount. Grandma used to tell me it was time to dismount the horse.
1: Well, I've been listening to your podcast. When did you start that?
0: You know, it it was a year in May. I have recorded, I'm looking up here on my board. Last week, I recorded my 274th. Wow. I have over 40,000 downloads from 83 countries and all 50 states.
1: So you're doing multiple a week.
0: Yeah, I do. I try to shoot for five a minimum of five a week. And as you know, I try to keep them between fifteen and eighteen minutes. Right. There's where preaching a long time has helped me because someone's asked me, well, Do you have a timer? I said, No, it's internal. I know that yeah. I've committed to this amount of time. Uh I love Carrie and folks, but it's hard for me to listen to an over an hour podcast.
1: I'm same way at I- my podcast I try to keep it around 30 to 45 and I have a few that'll be you know over an hour but
0: most people are like me you're I listen to podcasts when I'm at the gym when I'm walking or when I'm riding in my car and it's rare that I have an entire hour and this is probably again one of the things that makes me crazingly uh, the way I am I want to listen to it from start to finish
1: you've been talking about goal setting the last the yes. last few give us some goal setting tip and then maybe a goal setting tip when we don't know what tomorrow's gonna look like
0: one of the things can I just say that I had set in uh, in 2018 I had kind of set some goals and I actually have written this pretty much this book about grandma's leadership lessons And I'm kind of tweaking on and I'm going to have to let it go and get on the Kindle and and so forth. But anyway, I had set these goals. And then I met a person who talked to me about you ought to do a podcast. Now, you know, I knew what a podcast was, but I had no idea how you would produce one. Frankly, seemed overwhelming to me. But he said, I'll come alongside and I'll help you. So I looked at my goals for that year. So now we're into 2019. You know, I I said at the end of 2018, I'm now in 2019. And life got very complicated at our house in 2019. Um, Suzanne had cancer and surgery. We had a a family issue with her parents. I had a major, major disruption in a church here that uh, I had to attend to. And and so at times, when you set these goals ahead of time, uh, some people feel like they're a straitjacket. But doing a podcast was not one of them. But when, when God sends somebody into your path who says, you ought to do this, and I will help you do this, and you think about it, pray about it, and say, okay. So I scratched off one of my goals and put podcast on my goals. So I say all that to say, Joanne, our goal list is not the Magna Carta, the U.S. Constitution, nor the Bible. It is, a, it, it is something that can be changed as opportunities because today I don't know what opportunities you're going to have tomorrow. But mm-hmm. uh, it just seems to me that the people who set goals, it, it's sort of a theory I have. Back Way back in the day before it was heard of as much, I began to prepare my sermons a year in advance. I'd get away, pray. In those days, it was a cardboard box with files in it. And people say, well, you don't leave any room for the Holy Spirit to move. Now, I I always found two things to be true. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit in August knows what's going to happen next January. And when you get to that sermon, it was unbelievable how it was. And uh, I can remember a particular Sunday morning. I don't remember what the sermon was that I was prepared to preach, nor even what the sermon was that God laid on my heart on Saturday afternoon. But I got up on Sunday morning and said, God has changed the direction. And I told the Lord, I don't know that I can do this. The outline is already in the bullet. And so it goes to this. The only people that I believe who are truly in a position to change and listen to the Holy Spirit are not people flying by the seat of their pants. It's prepared people. Because when you're prepared and you have something to do, you really know it's God's voice and not fear. Right. Or not the easy way out. You really know that it's God's voice. One of the things that's helped me in the last couple of years with some goals that I've reached health wise and, and some other things is a concept that I've started reverse engineering them. I kind of say here I am right now and it's a three story house with an attic on top of that. And that's my goal. So how do I get from where I am to there? Well, what what is there? And right. then I, I bring it down, so I start researching it. What, what do people who, who achieve that goal, what, what kind of things do they do? The greatest thing about goals is not reaching the goal. It's the person you become in the process. It's the person you become by stretching yourself. It's the person you become by maybe having to get up earlier or go to bed early or getting a little bit out of where you thought you ought to be. It's not that I'm in love with goal setting. I am in love with the changes it's made in my life, working on them. I had tried to lose weight my entire adult life. I probably lost 500 pounds and gained 600. So I realized that wasn't working. Being on a diet had failed me miserably for decades. Right. So I began then to reverse engineer and I began to do research and blogs and books and articles. What do healthy people who've lost weight and got in better health do? And so I got a bullet journal and I just tracked two or three behaviors. I didn't worry about how much weight I was losing. I just knew if you wanna be healthy, here's what healthy people do. Start tracking it and make it a process. The problem is we live in an instant results-oriented society and you just have to trust the process. That is true in pastoral ministry. When I pastored in Syracuse, Indiana, the church went from, in about five five years, went from about 18 to 45. Nobody thought I was a good pastor. I mean, nobody thought I was anybody that would be invited anywhere to talk about anything. And then the church began to double. It went from 45 to 90 and 90 to 180. And our last year was nearly 300 in a town of 2000. And the embarrassing thing is people were inviting me to come and speak about my overnight success and my secrets, and I was dumbfounded, because I wasn't really, Joanne, doing anything different at 300 than I was at 30. It's just the process. You're planting seeds, you're beating the bushes, you're out there being Jesus to people, you're out there sharing with people, and it's hard work. I mean, you don't sow seeds and pull them up tomorrow you have to water and you nurture, and it's all underneath the surface and no one sees it and no one thinks you're doing anything. I became an overnight success after eight years of, of just doing the same thing. So I say to pastors, there's no big strategic plan that's going to win. You find what God has called you to do and stick with it. And it is the process that will make you better. Right. I'm commencing to preach here, Joanne, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, I Do you have to trust the process. I have to tell myself that a lot.
0: If you've listened to my podcast, you know I'm a devotee of both Darren Hardy and Jeff Olson and even James Clear, whose Atomic Habits. But those two in the compound effect and the slight edge. All those years when I was trying to make change, I was going to lose 50 pounds in a month. Or I'm going to start running a marathon tomorrow and I barely can walk to the mailbox. And so right. you set yourself up for discouragement. You have to find the baby steps, the little things that are the positive things to do that move you forward. They're easy to do, but anything that's easy to do is easy not to do. But you have to trust that after I do this 100 days or 200 days, then I will begin to notice something. And so I've become probably, Joanne, much more a process-oriented person than I've ever been in my life. So that's why you set goals, not to be rich, not to be famous, not to be popular, because you'll become a better pastor a better Christian, a better woman, a better man, by just allowing God to work you through process.
1: Right. And you have to write them down, right? You have to write them down.
0: (laughs) If you write down your goals, you are in the top 4% of all people in the world. Now, I used to say, I wrote them down and put them in a drawer and forgot about them. But you have to write them down and begin to find the process that will will get you there.
1: I set goals every year. Now this year...
0: (laughs) I, I told the church the other day where I was preaching, Joanne, I just gave you the, the lowdown that for Suzanne and I, 2019 was probably as difficult a year as we've ever experienced together. We had actually been in Detroit over the, hol- over the Christmas holiday. We were driving down Interstate 69, somewhere between Detroit and Indianapolis. It's probably New Year's Eve day. And I say to her, Boy, I will sure be glad to see 2019 go. 2020 <laughs> has to be better than 2019. So I promise I will never say that again. So I feel somewhat responsible for all of this, Joanne. Uh-huh. 2020 has to be better. I was talking to a DS the other day, and there's an old, he's been long gone. He was my district superintendent when I was on the Michigan district. Neil Strait used to say the toughest time to be a district superintendent, work with the boards, was during a presidential election year. Even though, you know, when the DS comes in, you don't politic or talk about it, but people just seem to be sort of agitated and upset. Well, then in 2020, you put about six other things on top of that. Right. And I'm not going to say I'll be glad to see 2020 over because you saw my track record. That's not really good (laughs) when I say that. If we look at the history of the church, the church has shined the brightest, the gospel has shined the brightest in the darkest of days. And when everyone is uncertain, and I think everyone feels somewhat uncertain, I think there are so many positives that have come out of this as well. I have churches that barely had Wi-Fi at their church that are are producing excellent live streaming services now. Nearly every church got an online giving presence. When I moved here nine years ago, I had two pastors that didn't even have email. So now fast forward to one of those pastors didn't have email, has live stream, online giving, and all of those things. So whether people wanted to or not, I think it's forced us to find other platforms to reach out and uh, to be a blessing. So who knows how many people any of us, any of you pastors are preaching to. Right. I think it's remarkable and positive.
1: Well you're a great gifts. pastor, yeah. Joanne. Thanks. I had I had a good mentor.
0: Well, I don't know about that, but I'm gonna take credit for you anyway, <laughs> whatever I had anything to do with it. Um, I had a good group of, of folks from Detroit who have gone on to pastor. You and Debbie and Jeff and Eric, Linda. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you sent so, a lot out.
0: A lot, Joanne. We did laugh a
1: lot. We did laugh a lot. Although I I'll never forget you telling uh a couple of our staff members, not to burn the church down while you were gone.
0: <laughs> there was good reason I told them that. <laughs> oh, Joanne, you bring back lots of wonderful memories.
1: Any, so any last words of encouragement for the listeners? I would
0: just say it, it is a time of discouragement. I preached yesterday from 1 Kings 17 where Elijah is fed by the ravens and drinks from the brook. And then God tells him to get up and go. And it's actually a long way away uh, to there. He would find a widow who would provide. And he gets there and she's picking up the sticks and he asks her for a drink of water. And then could you give me a piece of bread? And she says, I have nothing but a little flour and oil. And I'm going to make one piece of bread for me and one for my son. and We're going to lay down and die. And I think about the prophet of, of how God provided. For a while, he provided with ravens and a, and a stream. And then he sent him across the country to a widow. Now, I would, if I was Elijah, I'd have felt better if he'd sent me to a banker than a widow. And when he says to the widow, could you give me something? She says, I have nothing. And I think that's the focus of most of us. We focus on what we don't have and what we can't do and who can do it better and who has more. And she says, I have nothing. And I think, unfortunately, for many of us, including a lot of pastors, that's a default position. I can't do that. I don't have this. We don't have enough money at our church to try that and all of that. And then there's this interesting word translated into English, except a little oil and a little flour." And when God came, the little oil and the little flower fed she, her boy, and the prophet until it started to rain again. I'm wondering if in this time of a pandemic isn't a time for us to quit focusing on what we don't have and focus on the little bit of flour and the little bit of oil, and if we just consecrate it and allow God to sanctify it, there's more than enough to meet the needs uh, in the community. So I'm challenging pastors. Let's take a time to quit focusing on what we don't have and what we can't do. And focus on giving everything we have to the Lord, and just seeing what He's going to do. So that's my word of encouragement today. Focus on the little flower and the little oil, and see what God
1: does. That's a Joy, good word. I've
0: exhausted. I've said more than I know.
1: Well, I don't know about that, but that's a good word to leave everyone with. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh,
0: thanks for inviting me. You're the best. Give my love to your family and all my friends.
1: I will.